Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. We're going to have a money talk today. And uh, I know the tension, Daryl, all right, he's in, he's here for it. It's not that kind of talk, okay? This isn't going to be like a guilt or, or tension, hopefully filled, or, or like a scolding tone. There's no surprise offering at the end of today's talk or anything like that. Uh, it, rather, for a few weeks here, what we're doing is we're trying to flip the script on our conversation with our money and with our resources. And instead of like us telling you what to do with your money, we're asking the question, what if our money actually talked to us? What would our money say to us if you can imagine like we would sit down and actually have a conversation with our money about our own habits and our own behaviors? And I'll give you the punchline kind of early today. Uh, today, I want to actually ask you and challenge you to flip the script on how many of us uh, likely manage our money. So I am going to ask you to do something. And, and like right out of the gate, I want you to know I'm fully aware I am not the boss of you. I actually have no authority to make you do anything that I'm going to suggest that you do, and I'm not going to like, get in the weeds of your finances or anything like that. This is not a the church just wants my money kind of day. But what I will say is I've never met anybody who regrets what, doing what I'm going to talk about doing today. I've never met anybody who practiced what we're going to talk about practicing and thought, man, I wish I had done it the other way. And so the invitation's on the table for you, uh, what we're going to talk about today. Like I said, some of us, uh, when it comes to hearing from our money, maybe you rather wouldn't because like, you know where your money's been going. <laughs> like, I don't want to know. It feels like money might have the tone of a scolding parent who would be like, I'm not mad, but I'm disappointed. <laughs> like, you could have done better, right? Or, or others of us, if you think about the advice that money might give you and money might give me, maybe it just seems like it's going to be common sense, right? It's the things that we all know but maybe just struggle to actually do, that money would tell us to save a little more and to maybe spend a little less in some areas and to give if we can along the way. And what we said last week is that the surprising part of this series or the shocking part of this series is not necessarily what money would say to us if money talked, but it's that if money talked, what money would say to us would actually line up with what Jesus did say to us when he did talk and he did walk this earth. And uh, we talked about this last week. You may not know this, but Jesus actually talked about money often. In fact, if you like compile it all together, Jesus talked about money and talked about possessions more than he talked about heaven or hell combined. And uh, maybe he did that because I think for most of us, the news today that there is no money would be more alarming than there is no heaven. Right? Like, think about that. If I told you, like, check your bank account right now, there's nothing there. You're like, <gasps> like, you feel that. If I was like, eternity, I don't know. You're like, me neither, but we'll see what happens. Like, I, I think maybe Jesus knew that, or maybe he knew where our hearts often are and, and where our interest often is. And so he leveraged what was most important to us to get our attention. And I think maybe Jesus knew that what money does is money often promises what it can't deliver. Because I would be willing to bet I know how much money you want to make. Like, I know how much money you wish you had. Because the answer for all of us is a little bit more. <laughs> well, all of us are like, if I just had a little bit more, then I would be okay. Then I would be content. And that's the promise money makes sometimes. That if you had a little more of me, I'd finally deliver. That you'd finally be okay. Last week, we looked at one of the things that money might tell us. And what we said is that money would tell you, if money could talk, that I can add meaning to your life but I'm not the meaning of life. Th that money would say, I, I can be a useful tool, but I'm a terrible master. 
that I can add meaning to your life, but I'm not the meaning of life. And we talked about this dynamic that becoming a means to an end is actually the only way that anything becomes meaningful. In other words, like your life or your possessions or whatever it may be, it has to serve something else for it to have meaning. And when you think about maybe the most meaningful lives you've heard of, it's people who gave themselves in pursuit of something bigger than themselves. And so what we said last week is that money actually becomes meaningful when you begin to view it and use it as a means to an end that goes beyond you. That, that the thing that gives anything meaning in life is using it as a means to an end. And so last week we wrapped up and I left you with a question. And that question was this, it's to what ends do you want your life to be a means? Yeah, and ends is plural, like there can be multiple things that you give your life towards and you give your attention towards. But it's a question that has nothing and yet everything to do with money because when we get clarity around what we want our life to count for, about what matters most for us and the impact we wanna make, the thing that we wanna serve that goes beyond us, then when you begin to answer that question, your money will follow, your resources will follow, and your money will be what it was intended to be all along, a means to an end that goes beyond you. So that's where we started last week. Uh, today, we're gonna continue exploring another thing that money would tell us if money could talk, and this one's a little less fun. But I think if money could talk, money would tell us today that your self-control determines which of us gets control. That your self-control and my self-control determines who's actually in control of our lives. And I think most of us don't like this one, right? You can already feel like, oh no, where are we going today? Uh, but I think money would tell you that the, your relationship with me, your relationship with money, it, it's not about how much you have so much as it's what you do with what you have. That most of our relationship, most of our relationship with money, it's actually about our self-control, that our self-control determines who or what is actually in control. And I know this isn't necessarily true in every case. Like there are very real people in this community who uh, they don't make enough of an income to like make ends meet. And, and that's a really like real dynamic and I wanna be sensitive to that. But I think for many of us, uh, the financial pressure that a lot of us feel has less to do with how much we make and more to do with what we did with it or what we're doing with it. Like often, uh, it's not about how much we make, but it's what we do with what we make. And one reason that I think that's true for most of us is if we talk to a little over half of the world's population and we explain just like our annual salary or how much we make here in America, even right here in Peru, if you sat down with them and you explained how much money you make and how much pressure you feel, they would likely think that you're crazy. They, they would be confused because in the context of what happens in most of the rest of the world, we are extraordinarily well off. We are extraordinarily wealthy and we're ridiculously wealthy, but often we don't have margin in our lives and so we feel this pressure about how we make ends meet and where our money goes. And so if we were to explain that to half the world, they would say like, are you kidding me? If I had that much money, I wouldn't feel any pressure. <laughs> like all of my dreams could finally come true. Another way to frame that tension or that reality is I think like we often say if only I had more money, but money would say back to us, if only you had more self-control. We think if I had just a little bit more, then I would be okay, but money says if only you had a little more self-control because what we're gonna discuss today is that your self-control and my self-control ultimately is what decides who or what has control of your life. So if money could talk, money would tell you and would tell me that I am a much better servant than I am a master. And I think money would tell you and money would tell me that ultimately money always goes where we send it. That money always goes 
where we send it. And this topic, it's kind of an interesting topic because it's this area where faith and our finances intersect, where this like really practical stuff that sometimes we learned in school, sometimes we learned the hard way, uh, it shows up and it actually intersects with our faith and what we believe. And if you're here today and you are not a Christian, like you're just checking the whole Jesus thing out and somebody promised you lunch or whatever and you wandered in here, by the time we're done, you're gonna be so glad that you're not a Christian Okay, because uh, if you're here and you are a Christian, today's talk is actually going to demand something of you. It's actually going to lay some expectation on you. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, you can get a pass from that if you want, although I still think it works for you and I still think it's the best way to live along the way. But rather than me uh, just tell it all to you, I'm going to let a professional Christian explain it to us uh, because the Apostle Paul, who in the first century wrote like, the majority of the New Testament, what you find in the back half of the Bible, and planted all kinds of churches, he actually talks about this dynamic. And if you don't know Paul, Paul stepped onto the pages of human history as a guy who hated Christians. He was trying to stop the whole Jesus movement, and then he became a Christian. And after he became a Christian, he started planting churches, he started spreading the word about who Jesus is and what he had done, and eventually he started writing letters specifically, typically to Gentiles or to non-Jewish people all around the Mediterranean Rim, and he planted these churches and he wrote these letters, and they were preserved over time, and we have the opportunity to still read them and learn from his perspective today. And in the midst of one of those letters, Paul talks about this tension that we all feel as it relates to self-control and our stuff. And here's how he says it. Paul says to this early group of Jesus followers, he says, so I say, walk by the Spirit. Now, I know that doesn't sound like it has anything to do with our stuff yet, but what he's saying is that there's like this internal power that Jesus followers can actually walk with. He says, walk in sync with the internal Spirit. And and that's not like spooky season stuff. That's done and behind us. Uh, When he's saying like walk in line with the Spirit, what he's getting at is that if you follow Jesus, God sends his spirit to actually dwell inside of you and that sometimes God will give us nudges towards our conscience, that the spirit will kind of nudge you in a certain direction. And when you surrender your life to Jesus, your conscience, like Jiminy Cricket and all that stuff, it starts to change over time, right? That internal voice in your head and that nudge that you feel, it changes over time. And if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, maybe you've noticed this happening where things that never used to bother you, maybe even things that were a part of your life before you knew Jesus, suddenly start to bother you. They suddenly start to feel maybe they're not okay or or maybe there's something off there. And maybe that bothers you because the Holy Spirit moves inside of each of us and through our conscience begins to nudge us. And so Paul is saying, pay attention to that nudge. Walk by the Spirit. If God nudges you in a direction, listen to it. And then a little later in this letter, he starts to explain exactly where the Spirit of God will nudge us if we follow Jesus and if we listen. Uh, It's a famous verse. It's known as the fruit of the Spirit. And here's what Paul says. He says the fruit of the Spirit or, or the result of paying attention to the nudge of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I'd be willing to bet if you read that list, that's like a laundry list of how we wish everybody was, right? Like you're like, I wish my mom would read that list or, or I wish my spouse would like be that. This is how we want everyone to be. And, and it's an example, it's an illustration of how your heavenly father wants each of us to be as well. It's the outcome of saying yes to those nudges of God's spirit inside of us, those nudges on our conscience. And at the very end, if you didn't notice, it includes our word, self-control. That a part of what it means to pay attention to the nudge of God in our life, uh, the Holy Spirit is going to nudge us towards self-control 
in all things. And the reason that the Spirit does that, the reason that God nudges us towards self-control in all things is because all of those things on that list, all of those things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then self-control, all of those things are actually at war with our internal natural appetites, right? Most of us naturally don't end up that way. Most of us naturally don't produce those things in our life, and that includes our appetite for more stuff. That includes our appetite for the sense of security that comes with more money. And so it makes sense, right, in this list, I don't think ultimately we should be surprised that God, who revealed himself to us as our heavenly father, that he would nudge us towards self-control. And do you know why that is? It's because he's like a cosmic killjoy who just wants to control everything and say no just because it's like his thing that he loves to do? No, the reason that God wants us to live lives marked by self-control, it's because God wants you to know what you probably already know, and that's that nobody wants to be mastered by an appetite. That nobody, ultimately, when you think about your life and what you want your life to look like, that nobody wants to be mastered by an appetite. And I would be willing to bet Even in a room of this size, there are probably people here today, when I talk about being mastered by an appetite, if you're honest, you can say, yeah, you know, when I think about it, I've spent some time and I've spent a lot of money wrestling and trying to get free from an appetite that I stepped into thinking it was just going to be a pastime, right? Something I was just going to enjoy a little bit here and there. And then eventually, when it was too late, you discovered that it wasn't just a pastime, but it was actually a pathway that led you to be mastered by something other than yourself. Maybe it's shopping for you. Maybe it's some kind of substance. Maybe it's food. I don't know what it may be. Maybe it's all those Amazon boxes waiting for you on the front porch, right? It's that season. But when it's too late, often we discover that appetites can take control of our life. And if anybody asked you right now, like, hey, who's in control of you? We would all answer, like, well, I am, right? I'm in control of me. That's kind of the good American answer for us to give anyway. But secretly, I think some of us know we're not. Some of us know that we're actually mastered by our appetite, by that thing that we're caught up in in the midst of. And if God loves you, then your heavenly father doesn't want you to be mastered by an appetite because besides, if you're a Christian, you already have a master. You already have a Lord or a ruler over your life. And in fact, at the end of the parable, the story that we looked at last week, where Jesus kind of talks about what it looks like for our lives to count for something beyond us. At the end of that story, Jesus makes a familiar but really brilliant statement. And here's what he says. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. And that word master there, it's a little Greek word, kurios, which literally would translate for us to be somebody who's in charge by virtue of ownership. Somebody who's in charge because the the thing or the person belongs to them. And usually in the New Testament, that word kurios is not translated as master. It's translated as Lord. So Jesus is saying no one can have two lords. You can't have two masters. And when we think, again, we hear that term master, we're like, I don't have two masters. I don't have any master, right? I'm in charge. But I think your heavenly father would say, we'll see, right? And Jesus goes on and he spells it out really plainly to us. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And that's the brilliant part about Jesus' teaching right there. Because like just as an exercise for a second, pretend you don't know what Jesus is about to say there, and you just see this written up like on the screen. He says, you cannot serve both God and blank. 
Like, what would you naturally put in that blank? Some of us, we would say, like, you cannot serve both God and the devil, right? That seems like a natural thing. Or you cannot serve uh, both God and yourself. You cannot serve both God and your girlfriend or whatever that may be. Like, I don't know what you would put in the blank, but most of us, I think, naturally wouldn't put money in that blank. But Jesus does. Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. And here's the fascinating thing that this reveals to us. It's that Jesus viewed money as the chief competitor for our hearts. That as it related to to Jesus and his knowledge that, that our Heavenly Father loves us and wants a relationship with us, Jesus viewed money, he viewed stuff as the chief competitor for our hearts. He viewed that quest for more that we can all fall into as the main competitor to our devotion for God. And so I think Jesus' question for me and Jesus' question for you today maybe would be this. It's do you have money or does money have you? Do you have money or does money have you? And maybe you're like, look, I don't, it doesn't have me because I don't have enough of it for it to have me. <laughs> like you're like, I don't know, if like wealth is the ultimate test, I'd love to sign up to try. Right? <laughs> or if you're like, man, having too much stuff is the thing that creates too much stress in life, I'd love to find out how I handle it. <laughs> like maybe that's you today. Uh, but we have to remember who Jesus is talking to. Like is Jesus talking to the rich among us, the wealthy among us, and saying, you know, you have to really watch out because you have so much that money could be your chief competitor with God? Like, is he talking to the people who are celebrating Christmas every day from now until Christmas and shopping all the time? Or the people who go to the mall and it's like, what are you looking for? And they're like, I don't know, I haven't found it yet. Because <laughs> they're just looking for everything. No, it was 2,000 years ago. And Jesus, as he's talking, has all kinds of people gathered around him. But mostly, he had people who lived in an agricultural-based society who we would view as peasants or as poor people in their day. And Jesus makes this statement to them because Jesus is talking to everyone. Jesus is talking to everyone when he says you can't serve two masters, you can't serve both God and money. He's talking to everyone, and here's why. It's because everyone is at risk of making money their ultimate pursuit or their ultimate concern, which makes it their ultimate Lord. It it makes it the thing that masters us. It makes it the thing that can control us. And like, let's be honest with ourselves for just a second. Isn't it so much easier to trust Jesus with your sin than it is with your stuff? Like, isn't it so much easier to believe that, like when you mess up, we've all probably done this, right? You messed up and you're driving and you're saying that little like, help me God prayer. And you're like, how will you forgive me? Like, I messed up again and I know I'm probably gonna do it again, but like, will you forgive me? Isn't it so much easier to believe that he can forgive us from our sin in that moment than it is to trust him with our stuff on a regular basis? Or or, or isn't it so much easier to trust Jesus with the sorrows of life with that difficult stuff that we go to, and maybe you've been here before where you're like at an all-time low and you don't even know what you believe about Jesus or God, but you've been like, God, help me. Like, I need you. I just need something. And it's easy for us to trust Jesus with our sorrow, but not trust him every day with our stuff, with our relationship with money. I mean, again, let's be really honest. Isn't it so much easier to trust Jesus with our eternal reality, with, with our confidence that, yeah, we'll go to heaven someday and we'll spend time with him, than it is to trust him with our right now, everyday management of this reality, of this life, and, and our stuff. Jesus knew that. And that's why Jesus highlighted this for those people in the first century, why he highlights for us today. Because Jesus knew that stuff would be the primary competitor for our hearts. That stuff is the primary distraction from the kingdom 
of God in our lives. And here's what's crazy. Jesus never asked anyone for money because this wasn't about money for Jesus. It's about you and it's about me and it's about our hearts and he was clear. And this might hurt for some of us, right? If we're really being honest today. But Jesus was so extraordinarily clear. He's saying, if you haven't surrendered what you have to him, then you haven't fully surrendered to him. Right? If Jesus can have every part of your life except your stuff, then you haven't fully surrendered to him. You're holding on. If you haven't given him access to what you have, then he doesn't have all of you. You've opted for a lesser master along the way. And Jesus recognized that tension and he addresses it and he explains a way forward for each of us. And he doesn't make it an either or choice, but rather he talks about how we can manage this tension through the lens of something we can all understand, through the lens of our priorities. And he goes on, and the next thing he says is another famous but often misunderstood line. Jesus says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And if you just like pull that out of context of what Jesus was saying, you can make that verse mean a hundred different things. But what Jesus was saying in that moment is that the trick to getting out of the pursuit of more or our infatuation with better, to get that out of the driver's seat, the way we do that is to prioritize something else. He says, no one can have two masters, but seek first his kingdom. And what Jesus spent most of his time on this earth talking about was the kingdom of God. It was what it looked like when God had his way here on earth. And what he showed us is that it is a God first and others first way of living. That it is a God first and others first and me second kind of a kingdom. And he says, if you seek that first and if you seek his righteousness, which again, scripture tells us that God's righteousness was fully on display in Jesus. Jesus, who not only talked about a kingdom that's not from this world, but who embodied it by courageously and fearlessly serving others and putting others first. I mean, just a little bit after Jesus is talking about this, he gets near the end of his life and he meets with his guys, his 12 disciples who had followed him everywhere. And he gets down on one knee and he takes a towel out and he starts washing their dirty, grubby first century feet because it was this way of him modeling that, that God in a body takes the position of a servant, that it's others first, that that's what the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God looks like. But he goes on and he includes the other side too. Again, this isn't either or. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. See, it's not like spiritual stuff is good, material stuff is bad. Honestly, I think Jesus would say it's all spiritual stuff. Like, it's all spiritual stuff. That's a different talk for a different day. But he's saying this isn't either or. It's first and second. It's a matter of prioritizing, and somebody's kingdom is going to come first. Somebody's kingdom is going to come first in your relationship with your stuff and, and with your money. And I think Jesus knew what all of us eventually find out one way or another, and that is that when we put us first, we actually come in last. When we put us first in the way that we organize our lives and the relationship that we have with our money and with our stuff, ultimately, we actually come in last because when you put yourself first and when I put myself first, isn't it true that you have a hard time saying no to you? Like, like you can talk yourself into anything. You are the best salesman that you know when it comes to you because you've been a part of every bad decision that you've ever made. Right? And you convinced yourself that it was a good decision in the time, or at least that you were going to ignore all the bad things that you knew, and you were just going to go for it. And that's true in all of life, not just financially. But we all have a hard time saying no to ourselves. And so if we live me first, eventually we end up 
last because we're not really in control of ourselves. Eventually, you're not actually mastered by you. You're mastered by your appetites. And the other thing about an appetite, by the way, is the more you feed it, the more it grows. Like, isn't that true? Thanksgiving's coming. Like, the more you feed it, the more it grows. That's why, like, the next day, you're like, why am I so hungry? It's because you just, like, stretched that stomach out, and, like, the appetite grew, right? And that's why we gain a lot over the holidays. But the point is, you were created to seek first your creator. You were created to seek first something greater than you. It's what we talked about last week, that your life, if you want your life to have meaning, has to be a means to an end that is bigger than yourself. And when we get this stuff out of order, things get disordered in life. When we get this dynamic out of order, we can get stuck in life and we feel this pressure, right? Because it's all going somewhere, but it doesn't seem like there's enough of it to go around because when you put yourself first, again, you ultimately end up last. So what do we do about this dynamic? The good news is Jesus told us as well. Jesus modeled it as well because what he said is we have to put something else first. We have to flip the script on how we naturally tend to relate to our money and to our stuff. And for many of us, if you've never thought about this dynamic and you're just kind of like, I started making money and I got a job and then I had a family and I was just trying to make ends meet and now here I am, most of us manage our lives something like this. When it comes to our resources, there's like that pie, right, of how much there is to go around, and we slice it up in this priority order. We say like, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna do what it takes to live life the way that I wanna live life, and then if there's something left over at the end of that, it's probably a good idea to save a little bit, right, for a rainy day. Mom taught me that, like I had to squirrel away a little something. And then at the end of the day, or often at the end of the year, we're like, if there's anything extra after I do all that, then I'm gonna practice generosity. I'm gonna give from that dynamic. It's this me first way of approaching our stuff. It's like, I'm gonna do my thing, I'm gonna live my life, I'm gonna take care of what I need and then what I want, and then maybe I'll save a little bit, and then if there's anything left over at the end, I'll practice generosity. Jesus says we should flip the script on that. And instead, what Jesus suggests is that we live in a seek first the kingdom of God kind of way, and what that means is we flip that all on its head and we take our resources, and rather than living first and then saving if there's any left over and then giving if there's anything left over from that, what if we flip the script and we intentionally and deliberately choose to give first? We deliberately and intentionally choose to give away first, to practice generosity first, and then once we've decided what that looks like for us, then we save, knowing it's a responsible thing to do, knowing that it helps us uh, navigate our lives and keep control on this monster called money that can control our lives. And then we live on a decided amount that we know is left, that we know is there. We give first because Jesus says, seek first God and his kingdom. And it's an others-focused kingdom. And prioritizing something or someone other than yourself is ultimately a way that we practice submission or to use a big churchy word, lordship, right? It's ultimately a way that we practically in our lives say, Jesus, you're the master. You're in control of my life, and that includes my stuff. And so I'm going to choose to give first, knowing that your kingdom is others first, and that's what it means to seek that kingdom. It's to give to others first, and then to save because it's a responsible thing to do, and it manages and stewards what I have for a limited time well. And then I'm going to live on the rest. Telling your money to go, this is really cheesy, but Hang in with me, okay? Telling your money where to go can prove to you that money is not running the show for you. Like if you intentionally tell your money where to go, you're not being mastered by it. You're not being mastered by it. But if you just follow your appetite, it will win every time. Your self-control is what decides 
ultimately who is in charge. And more important than all of that, giving first, as we're talking about today, it is a habit that will make an impact with your life, but, but even beyond that, it will lead you into a richer and deeper and more intimate relationship with your heavenly Father. Because what Jesus was getting at here is really clear, but it's really demanding of each of us if you want to be a follower of Jesus. He says that the litmus test of our devotion to God is our willingness to put him and others first in the arena of our money and our possessions. You can't have two masters, right? You'll love one and you'll hate the other. You'll be ruled by one and you'll despise the other. You can't love both God and money because your devotion to God is revealed by your relationship with your stuff and your willingness to put him and others first in the arena of your possessions. So here's the ask. Okay, here's the challenge for each of us today. First, if you're here uh, and you're not a Jesus follower, like I said, this isn't necessarily a demand on your life. You can get a pass from this and just say like, man, glad I'm not one of them. Uh, but I do think if you practice this, you'll be better off for it. And, and for the Jesus followers in the room, Christian and non-Christian alike, here's my challenge to you as we round out this year. What if for the next two months, okay, like between now, what is today, the 11th or the 12th? 12th? Say, now till January 10th to 13th, wherever we're at. What if you chose a percentage of your income and you chose to give it away as soon as you got paid? What if you chose an amount, a percentage of your income, and you decided just for the next two months, okay, there's a finish line, you can quit if it doesn't work for you. But what if you decided, I'm gonna give it away as soon as I get paid? And let me be really clear. I'm not saying give it away to Story Church for the next two months, okay? You certainly can. We won't turn it away. But you can give it anywhere because the point isn't the money. The point isn't the resources. The point is practicing this muscle of generosity, of giving first and then saving and then living in that order. The point is pre-deciding and giving it first off of the top. And the reason that I want you to do this is to stretch that muscle, but there's a second thing I want to ask you to do. If you've never jumped into this, or maybe you just need a refresher on this. What if you chose a percentage for the next two months you gave first before like it hits your bank account and then it goes to wherever you're going to send it? And the second part that I'm going to challenge you to do is just as important as that first. What if you do that and then you pay attention to the internal tension that it creates in you to do it for two months? What if you chose to give first somewhere and then you listened closely to the conversations that you're having in your mind as you do it? You, you paid attention, like beginning right now. Like pay attention to the conversation you're having with me in your head right now. The yeah, but, or the well, you can't, or whatever that is. Like what is at the center of your resistance to this idea? And listen, I, again, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying like tithe or 10% or any of that stuff that we talk about in church sometimes. Just any percentage. It could be 1%, it could be less than 1%. Start somewhere, intentionally put generosity first for, for a two-month window, and, and then be honest with yourself and listen to your excuses and do it anyway. Listen to your excuses and do it anyway for two months because I think what will happen for you and what would happen for me is we'll discover that it's not really about money after all, is it? We've we discovered that that resistance in us, it's not actually about the stuff after all, it might be about something else. And it might be about what Jesus said, that you might be wrestling with who or what is ultimately going to be your master. Who or what is ultimately in charge of the direction of your life. And if your money could talk, your money would tell you what Jesus would tell you, that money is a better servant than a master.
that money is a better tool than a Lord over our lives. And just to wrap up, like, so that you know, I'm not asking you to do anything that I don't do. Uh, this is something, I, I mentioned it last week, like, I'm so glad that I got started with this early. And it wasn't because I had some amazing devotion to God and, and like, was so amazingly spiritually mature. As I told you last week, I started giving uh, specifically to the local church in a percentage-based kind of way because I joined a church staff and I read my church staff handbook for the first time in my life. I read an employee manual. And it said uh, church staff members are expected to give a percentage of their income back to the church. And it wasn't a heavy-handed thing. It was a practice-what-you-preach kind of thing because we ask other people to be generous. So we wanted to model generosity. And I was fresh out of college, and I was pretty simple. So I was like, okay, it says to do it. Like, let's do it. And so we budgeted for it. We started giving first. And then I knew, like, we eventually wanted to have a family and had some goals. So I was like, we're going to save a little bit on top of that. And my point is we started early. We started with percentages when the numbers were lower Right? When we were younger and we weren't making what we make now. And, and I'm so glad that I did. Not because I have like an amazing story of how rich and incredible my savings account is or, or even the millions of dollars that I gave away. It's none of that. I'm so glad I did because of the priority that it established in my life. That it established this, this impulse in me that said, I'm actually not going to be ruled by my stuff. I'm not going to be mastered by an appetite. And I struggle with it as much as anybody else. Okay? I still like things. It was, it was just my birthday this past week, so I got, like, gifts. I've still got the Amazon list of the stuff I didn't get, okay? So I'm thinking, like, okay, what am I going to get for me now? But my point is I learned to start with that flipped script that says, no, no, I'm going to give first. I'm going to seek first his kingdom. I'm going to be others first in whatever capacity I choose to be, in whatever capacity I can be, and then I'm going to save, and then I'm going to live. And doing so has enabled me to have some measure of control over my resources, to not be mastered by my stuff, because the issue isn't the stuff. The issue is priorities in our heart. So what if you gave it a shot? Especially over this season where maybe we give more than ever, but we also tend to spend more than ever. Like we've all had the second week of January bill comes in moment, right? What if it wasn't that way this year? Because you chose to prioritize things differently. What if for two months you gave first and you paid attention to the tension that that created in you? I think one result is you would have a lot more clarity about the state of your heart and if you really trust God with that, you might have a deeper relationship with him at the end of that time. Let me pray for you. God, I know that this is a tension-filled dynamic, and that's kind of the point. That's why you talked about it in the terms that you talked about, that all of us have this competition inside of us between you and between our control, or between you and become stuff, between stuff that can so easily control us. And so God, I pray for my friends here today uh, that maybe today was a tension-filled, uh-oh kind of a moment. That they would have the courage to not just bury their head in the sand and keep doing what they're doing, but that they might actually take up the challenge. That they might actually choose a percentage of their income to give away first to some kind of worthy cause or something that, that you've made them passionate about. God, help them practice generosity, not because of the stuff, but to free the grip that stuff can have on our hearts that they would actually open up their hearts and they would live open-handed lives in the way that you've called us to live and help us who are followers of you to understand that if we don't give you access to our stuff, we don't really give you full access. And so God, help us take a step in that direction to open up to you, to trust you. And God, maybe at the end of this two-month stretch for some of us, open our eyes to the incredible impact we can have when we partner with you and the incredible intimacy and relationship we can have when we trust you first and seek your kingdom first. We pray and we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. 
If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.